Good morning. My name is Jake, uh, as Perry said, and I'm the middle school coordinator here at the Boulder campus. So shout out to the middle school section over there. You guys are awesome. Yeah. If I haven't met you, I'd love to meet you after the service as well. And as Perry said, I grew up at Calvary. So I moved here in sixth grade. And I remember the first Sunday that I was actually here, I came up to the third floor, which is our middle school designated section and walked up there and I was nervous and I hadn't, we moved from Gainesville, Florida and I hadn't, woo, go Gators. Yeah. <laughs> and I hadn't really connected with the church youth group at that one. So I came up here, sent up to the youth group and immediately was uh, surrounded by leaders and students who just welcomed me and middle school ministry became a place where my own faith just personally developed and grew and grew confident and I just learned to love theology and love the bible and be mentored in the middle school ministry going into the high school ministry so for me it's like the sweetest thing to be back here again after my own faith was developed and I was empowered at Calvary and now I'm back here and I actually, before I even jump in tonight or this morning, um, I want to tell you a little bit about how I got empowered at Calvary, because I think it's important for us to know uh, how Calvary does take empowering leaders really, really seriously. When I was in high school, I started volunteering in the middle school ministry as a high school leader, which was so awesome. And throughout the four years of high school, fell in love with middle school ministry, loved leading, and felt like I had giftings in the area of ministry in particular. Um, but it wasn't something that I felt like, oh, this is what I'm going to do the rest of my life or what I'm going to commit myself to full time. And my senior year of high school rolled around, and I committed to Bozeman, Montana, for Montana State University to go into business because I wanted to open a coffee shop because we don't have enough of those <laughs> around our lives. So that was my goal. My plan was to go open a coffee shop with a business degree. And nearly overnight, one morning, I woke up and had this feeling of being compelled to go into full-time ministry. Like, man, if I miss this, like, I feel like this is my giftings and what I love to do. And if I miss this, then I'm missing where I'm supposed to be. So that continued to develop over the next few months. My plan was still to go to Bozeman and do a business degree because I was like, that'll be helpful in ministry. It's something that you can carry anywhere with you. And about a week before I was supposed to go to Bozeman. So this is six days before I'm supposed to leave and move to Bozeman for my first semester of school. I met up with Pastor Tom and just told him about some of what I had been experiencing, some of the call I'd been feeling and this new developed sense of, oh, I'm supposed to go into full-time ministry. And he said, and this will sound kind of harsh, but I think he said it to me way nicer than this. He said, you can go to Bozeman and rack up a huge debt for four years and then need to go to seminary and rack up more debt and then go to a job that you will never be able to repay that debt <laughs> and then go into ministry from there. Or you can reconsider now and see what the Lord has for you elsewhere. And so I spent much of that six days on my knees before the Lord and three days before I was supposed to leave to Bozeman decided I was going to take the semester off, did an internship in Charlotte, North Carolina, where I worked for a church there. And then Pastor Tom told me about this beautiful Bible college called Moody Bible Institute, <laughs> where also Tom went. And, uh, and it was awesome. I, I ended up going there my second semester, finished up there and was in conversation with Calvary. And now I'm back here again. So it is, yeah. It's so 
good to be here this morning with you guys and to open the word. And I told you I was on my knees a lot in those six days, and this morning we are going to be talking about the last passage in the book of James, which is all about being on our knees. So if you guys have your Bibles with you or one of your journals, you can open it up to James chapter 5. After the book of Hebrews for First Peter. James 5 is all about prayer. And if you remember this entire series, we've been spending time learning how to be a Christian. Not how to become a Christian, but how to be a Christian. And James is going to finish us with a strong note about one of the most important things about what it actually means to be a Christian in this world. And that's prayer. What does it mean to be a Christian? Being a Christian means that you are a praying individual. I think that's what James's big point is today, is that Christian people are praying people. That if you are a Christian, that means that you spend a lot of time in prayer with the Lord. Some of us in this room have different relationships with prayer. Maybe you're a prayer warrior and you've been praying for years and years and years and you spend hours in prayer every week. And maybe you struggle with your prayer life and it's a difficult part of what it means to be a Christian for you. Maybe you're in this room and you don't know the Lord and you've never prayed before. Wherever you're at, I think James has a word for us this morning. And before we get into the text, I'm going to read you a quote by Martin Lloyd-Jones. It says this, Prayer is, beyond any question, the highest activity of the human soul. Therefore, it is at the same time the ultimate test of a man's true spiritual condition. There's nothing that tells the truth about us as Christian people so much as our prayer life. Everything we do in the Christian life is easier than prayer. God knows it's much easier to preach like this from a pulpit than it is to pray. A man discovers the real condition of his spiritual life when he examines himself in private when he's alone with God. Feels a little convicting. (laughs) You read that and you're like, the ultimate test of a man's spiritual life, what is my prayer life like? If you're feeling convicted about that, Uh, then, you know, that's a reality that prayer is a difficult part of the Christian life. Martin Lloyd-Jones tells us two things. One, it's incredibly difficult, and two, it's incredibly important. So what is James going to tell us about prayer today? Christian people are praying people. And what James is going to tell us is when should Christian people be praying people? And why should we be praying people? When do we pray? And why do we pray? Look at verse 13 of James chapter 5. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. When should Christian people pray? His answer, at all times. If anyone among you is suffering, let him pray. James's first point is that we pray when we suffer. We pray when we suffer. A lot of us this year, or the last couple of years, have been through so much suffering. The world has been through so much suffering. And maybe it's not our first response to seek the Lord in the midst of our suffering. Maybe our first response is to find a solution for it or to turn inward to ourselves. But James is telling us that Christian people are praying people who pray at all times, which means that we pray when we suffer. But I will say, I think that sometimes in crisis moments of our lives, that's actually where we naturally find ourselves on our knees the most. When you're going through something difficult, you can probably look back on that season and realize, man, I spent a lot more time in prayer in that difficult week of my life than I do right now. I spent a lot of time in prayer in those six days where I was trying to decide, am I going to go to Bozeman or not? I spent so much time in prayer. 
because crisis prayer comes naturally to us because we feel like we need something and we feel like God can deliver that to us. But what James is telling us isn't just to pray in the midst of our crises, but also to pray in every instance of suffering that we might experience in our lives. The word he uses in this verse refers to a variety of suffering. And so what I think he's saying is something that Tim Keller has a line for that I think is really good. He says, let every sigh become a prayer. Let every sigh become a prayer. This means if anything in your life causes you to just go, if anything is difficult and it causes you any anguish or grief or sorrow, let it become a prayer. This means if you're running late to a meeting and you lose your car keys, seek the Lord in that. Or if you lose a close one of someone in your life, you should seek the Lord in that. That we pray in our great crises and in our small moments of suffering in our lives. Because what James is getting at isn't just a quantity of prayer, but it's an attitude of prayer. That we would walk through our lives actually seeking the Lord's presence in every part of our lives, when things are really, really good or when things are really, really tough. This means that we should be praying that we would drive safely. Like we should be praying that we would arrive somewhere safely. And we should be praying for those in our lives who cause us relational pain. We should be praying for our family issues and maybe our friend issues with our friends. And nothing is too small. If it causes us suffering, it's not too small to bring before the Lord in prayer. Because Christian people pray first and foremost at all times. And James encapsulates this by first telling us that we pray in suffering. And then second, he says, is anyone among you cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. I was tra training a leader for the middle school ministry recently. And one of the questions that we ask in our trainings is, how in your life right now can you seek to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength better? And one of the leaders said, I think I could verbally express gratitude better to the Lord. And that resonated with me. Because oftentimes, again, crisis prayers come naturally to us. But when we're in the midst of praise or when we're in the midst of a good season, our natural response probably isn't to actually seek God. A couple weeks ago, I was overlooking at my finances and discovered or was looking particularly at my student debt and was like, man, Lord, I am going to need your help to pay this off in the next couple of years. I want to pay it off well and efficiently. Would you provide for me and help me to pay that off and provide for me the wisdom to budget well? And I prayed that. And a couple days later, I received in the mail an unexpected stipend check from the government for something to do with school. Still not even sure where that came from, but <laughs> it was just this unexpected check in the mail for a, an amount that was super helpful. I received that and my first response was, I need this, this is great, and cash it in. But I completely forgot that five days earlier, I had just been praying to the Lord that he would provide for me to help me pay off my student loans. Because oftentimes in our lives, what happens is we expect life to be good. Like it's almost, we, we forget that the Lord is blessing us and even the good parts of our lives as well. And rather than verbally expressing our gratitude to him and praising him in the good circumstances in our lives, oftentimes our expectation is that life is good and that we seek the Lord when we're in crises or maybe when we're in foxholes in our lives. And so James, again, is touching on an attitude first and foremost of being in conversation with God about all things in our lives, that we as Christian people should seek at all times the Lord in everything we've got going on. 
Do we have things this morning that are good in our lives that we could verbally express thanks to the Lord for? Maybe it's your job. There's probably bad parts of it, but there's probably a lot of good parts of it as well. Where How much time do we spend the Lord, t- thanking the Lord and saying, thank you, Lord, that you provide so well for me in my life and in my job? Thank you, Lord, for my family, for my kids, for my wife, for my husband. Thank you, Lord, that I'm part of this church. How much do we have in our lives to just spend time on our knees in conversation thanking the Lord for who he is and how he's provided for us? So again, James is touching on when should we pray? At all times. And he gives us suffering and cheer, which covers the vast expanse of our lives. And then he gives us one more example. He says this, verse 14. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And so we have prayer in our sufferings, in our cheer, and in our sickness. James brings it to a physical level. He says that we seek the Lord in all circumstances in our lives, including when we're physically ill. My first response when I'm sick is usually to take some Advil, but rarely is it to look to the Lord and say, Lord, help me through this and to recover from this well. And a couple notes about this, because we might not totally know what James is talking about initially here, but sickness in the first century looked a little bit different. And so what James is saying isn't that we have to call the elders for every single sickness we ever experience in our lives. You, you don't have to call the elders every time you have a headache, although you're welcome to as well. But what he's telling us is that he's referring to sickness, which in the first century would have meant severe sickness. Think of all the instances in the New Testament where people are sick and they require prayer or healing. It's usually not something minor or something little, but it's usually something really severe that require, that's near death or something that is lifelong to their a lifelong injury or a lifelong illness. And James is referring here likely to circumstances like that. And so what he's saying is that when there's people within the body of the church who are going through incredibly bad injuries, incredibly bad sicknesses, we should seek the counsel of the church and seek the community of the church to lift up that person in prayer. And we actually have natural ways to do that at Calvary. One of our values as a church is prayer in faith. It's prayer in faith. Calvary has been a praying church since the very beginning of its existence. And one of the coolest things about Calvary is that every single one of you in front of you has a little connect card. It's blue. It's got space at the bottom of it to write down a prayer request. Those every single week go out to the staff and to the elders of the church. And so when you fill those out, they actually get prayed for by the church, and by the elders. And it's a sad week when we have a large congregation and two prayer requests or something like that. We want to pray for you as a staff, and the elders want to pray for you. And that's a really natural way to just actually submit to the elders and allow ourselves to submit prayer requests so that they can be prayed for by the church. And you know what else? Calvary actually has a practice of sending elders to someone's house to pray for them when they're incredibly sick or injured. So if you know someone who needs that, please submit a prayer request form. If you yourself are in a situation where you need that, please submit a prayer request form. And the anointing of oil that James is talking about here is likely symbolic of telling, of representing God's presence upon that person. What's clear about the text is that the emphasis of the healing is not on the oil, but it's on the prayer. Prayer is what brings the healing. And the anointing might've been a soothing practice, kind of a luxurious practice, 
something where when Jesus is anointed, all the disciples look around and say, look at how expensive this ointment was because the oil was something that was considered really wonderful and luxurious and soothing. And we at Calvary actually have also practiced this in the past in houses before, where just as a kind symbol of God's presence, you would anoint the sick person and lift them up in prayer to the Lord. But again, what James is telling us here this morning is that we pray at all times when we're physically ill, when we're suffering, or when we're in cheer, that our attitude toward God should be constantly bringing our lives before him and inviting him into our personal lives. And the question that we don't ask ourselves super often in the church is why do we pray? Why do we pray? We know that we should pray at all times, but why is it such an important practice for Christians to pray? James's second point here is that we as Christian people believe that prayer is powerful. Christian people are, are praying people primarily because we truly believe in the prayer power of prayer. He says this in verse 15, and the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. James tells us to pray at all times. And then he tells us what happens when we pray, they get answered. What happens when we pray? They get answered. He says, when you pray for the sick person, they'll be healed. That we pray to a God who is powerful enough to answer our prayers and the ways that we ask them. And that we as Christian people truly believe our prayers get answered and that God is powerful enough to answer us in the ways that we ask. Some of us might find this text confusing at first because we've struggled in our prayer lives and we've prayed to God and felt like we haven't received the answer we were looking for. Or maybe you've had someone who was sick and they didn't recover. Or maybe you've had a sickness for a long time and it just hasn't gone away. And you're like, what, what is this text even saying? How, how can we be sure that God will answer in the same ways that we're asking? But what James is saying here isn't necessarily that we're entitled to get an answer in the exact way that we think every time we pray. What he's telling us is that our normal expectation of God when we pray should be that he would answer us in power in the way we ask. Our normal expectation that when we come on our knees before God, we can expect him to answer us. That we really can pray in faith, believing that God is powerful and is capable of answering us in the ways that we ask. But what's important for us to realize is that this is a prayer of faith. A certain commentator says this, the faith exercised in prayer is, is, sorry, excuse me, the faith exercised in prayer is faith in the God who sovereignly accomplishes his will. When we pray, our faith recognizes the overruling providential purposes of God. A prayer for healing then must usually be qualified by recognition that God's will in the matter is supreme. Prayer is somewhat of a mystery in our lives. We get to experience the expectation that God answers our prayers and yet at the same time, we have to realize that God's will is supreme over ours. We're told to pray in eager expectation that God will answer us how we pray. And yet at the same time, we have to know that as we pray in faith, we trust that God's will is greater than our own. James's exhortation to us then is pray without ceasing and pray believing that God has the power to do what we ask. He first refers to physical healing and says that God is capable of physically healing us when we pray to him. And then he brings it to spiritual healing. 
that not only can we bring our physical illnesses before the Lord, but we can trust that God has power to spiritually heal us as well. Verse 15 in the second half says this, if the one who is sick has committed sins, he will be forgiven. James is not necessarily correlating sin to this sickness. He says, if he has committed sins, then he will be forgiven. But a common view of sickness in the first century would have been that it was very closely associated with sin. And we can recognize that there is some truth to the fact that our spiritual lives are not divorced from our physical lives, that oftentimes our physical lives are correlated to our spiritual lives, but there is not necessarily a correlation between sickness and sin all the time. And James recognizes that. But he does say that if this man is brought before the Lord in prayer, his sins will be forgiven. That on the knees before the Lord in sin, or in prayer, confessing those sins before him, they will experience spiritual healing as well. And he says this in verse 16, therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. So he opens it up just be, not just to personal prayer and confession before the Lord, but to communal confession within the church. I have a couple of buddies who meet together and we talk through our sins together and pray for one another and talk about the gospel and how it applies to our sins. So we meet on a weekly basis and we talk about the sins of our former weeks or the long-term things that we've been struggling with and we confess them to each other and we bring them before the Lord and then we remind each other of the gospel so that we can walk forth no longer in our shame. And the reason we do this isn't because we don't already recognize that we're permanently forgiven and secure in Christ forever. We recognize that that's what the gospel does for us. Christ forgives us, and that's permanent. That's a one-time thing, and we know that we are no longer in our sin. But the reason we confess our sin frequently, and the reason why James is telling us to do it here, is because it provides healing for us. That it's part of our sanctification. That as we walk forth with Christ, and we continue to open up our sins before God and before other people, we can walk away from those sins and be healed from them in real time. One thing I've realized in the process of doing this is how apathetic I can be toward my own sins. When you come to a group that's about talking about your sin and you don't have much to say, that's probably not a good sign, <laughs> right? I've realized that there's many weeks that pass by where I don't even think about the sins in my own life. And yet at the same time, it's also a place where I can realize that I don't have to carry the shame that I've carried in my heart over my sin and the ways that sometimes you might believe if you're just alone. So this is the practice that James is talking about. And I just do want to ask you the question today. Is there someone in your life who knows about your sin? Is there someone in your life who you feel like you can be asked anything by them and who is aware of what's going on in your heart and where your own temptations are or where your own things in your life happen that are displeasing to the Lord. And if not, maybe you find that person or those people who you can talk openly with about your sin so that you can walk in healing and let go of your shame and come before the Lord in complete openness. James then, at the very end of this passage, after talking about how he, prayer and confession can bring healing in our own lives, he also talks about the symptoms of a church that has these practices, prayer and confession. Verses 19 through 20 say this, My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth 
and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Churches that are aware of each other's sins and that are praying for each other and are walking together will also seek out the wanderer from the faith. In the last couple of years, it's likely that you might have seen lots of close friends and family who've walked away from Christ, who have maybe found the world more enticing and they've been tempted by what sin does and offers and they followed that instead. Or maybe they've been burned by the church and things have been hard and it's been a hard age to be a Christian and you've watched people walk away from Christ and reject the truth of the gospel. Maybe all of us can think of some people in our lives who are like that and James is calling us to get coffee with those people, to grab lunch with those people, to sit down with them and invite them back into the faith, knowing that they are, the door is never shut for them, that they can be brought back from their sin and be saved from death and their sins will be covered by Christ's gift. That we're a church, if we're a church that's praying and confessing to one another, we're also a church that pursues the wandering soul because we believe that prayer is powerful and we believe that we can have an open relationship with God as our father, even about our sin. James concludes here with an illustration of prayer's power in our lives. And he tells us that Christian people are praying people and that we believe in the power of prayer and that we pray at all times. And then finally, he gives us an example of what the power of prayer actually looks like. Verse 17, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. And he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again and heaven gave rain and the earth bore its fruit. Honestly, when I read this, my first thought is, man, that's a weird illustration to pick out of the power of prayer. There's a lot of instances in scripture where there's really powerful prayer. I'm like, man, praying for rain and some prophet named Elijah. But I think there's really strategic reason that James puts this as the illustration of prayer's power. And it's, he's making two points. Elijah is a prophet at the time of King Ahab in the first Kings chapter 17. And Ahab is this terrible king who's leading Israel, the people of God into sin, and who himself is just accumulating greediness for himself. And he's accumulating money and he's stepping on the poor. He's doing all the things that just checklist bad king would do. And Elijah is a prophet during this time from God sent to Ahab. And the text says that he prayed and the rain stopped. Then he prayed again and the rain came back. And this was to call out Ahab, to bring Ahab's attention to God once again. But what's crazy about this example that James brings up is two things. One is that the prayer that Elijah prays is seemingly insane. Like it's such a powerful prayer. He prays for weather to change and then it changes. We read that a lot of the time and we tend to superheroize a character in the Bible who does that. Like man, praying for rain to stop and start again, praying for a drought and expecting that to happen, that sounds crazy, like something that just couldn't happen here today. So that's, that's the point James is making, is that the prayer is really, really powerful. But then he comments on the person of Elijah in that prayer. He says that Elijah was a man unlike us in every way. He doesn't say that. He says in verse 17, Elijah was a man with a nature just like ours. What James is saying, is that the prayer Elijah prayed was a prayer that we also can pray. That the, prayer, the way that Elijah believed in the power of prayer is a way that we ourselves can actually expect 
God to answer our prayers, that God will stop the rain, that God is capable of doing such great things because our God is so great, that we have a God who is so powerful that he's able to control the very earth that we live on. So why are our prayers so little? Why do we pray for so little if God is such a great God? We really believe here at Calvary that prayer is powerful. And so we ourselves can begin to pray for big things. We can pray for the people in our lives who are walking away from Jesus right now, that they'll come back. And we can expect that God is actually capable of transforming their hearts. We can pray for our marriages when they're really, really difficult and that just doesn't seem like there's a way out. We can pray for the war in Ukraine because we believe that we have a God who is more powerful than any human being on this planet. We can pray for the things in our lives that have caused us pain for years, the things that we've been experiencing personally, the depression, the anxiety, the things we've been caught in. We believe that God is powerful enough where he can actually respond to those parts of our lives. And the last question I want to ask today is why is prayer powerful? Why is prayer powerful? Romans 5.1 says this, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Prayer is powerful because God is powerful and we have unlimited access to him. Prayer is powerful because we have a powerful God and we have total access to his ear. This text is saying that we've been justified, that when we looked at Christ in faith, we were justified and we made peace with God through Jesus. That before Jesus, we were separated from God in our sin, but that Jesus came and he reconciled us to God so that now we have peace with him. This means two things. One is that we have access to the most powerful person in the entire universe, God who created the heavens and the earth. The second is that he doesn't relate to us just as creator. He relates to us as our father, that he listens to us like a father listens to his son or daughter. Last week, I got a text from my father saying, hey, Jake, I just bought you two tickets to Bob Dylan because I know that you love Bob Dylan and you wouldn't buy them for yourself. He wouldn't let me pay him back. You know why he did that? Because he loves me. Because that's what fathers do is they give to their kids because they love their kids. And what, James is, or, and what Romans 5.1 is saying to us is that God loves us in the way that our earthly fathers love us only perfectly. That he relates to us as a father who is willing to hear our every cry and our every desire and desires to give us the things that we ask for. So God is powerful. He can answer your prayers. And he is our compassionate father who will never close his ear to you. So, Calvary, as we go out this week, my hope is that you believe in the power of prayer because you believe in the power of the God who willingly listens to your every cry and that we can pray knowing we have a powerful God who can answer us and a compassionate father who will listen to us with delight. I'm going to pray for us now and then we can invite up the worship team.